Now we come to Jonah chapter 3. And um, you will remember that by now, the Jonah has been vomited out by the big fish. Um, his new birth, we might, um, we might put it that way. And um, he's now ready to be sent off uh, to Nineveh. So it's Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Okay, so we're going to look at Jonah chapter 3 this morning. And this chapter begins with God repeating his call to Jonah, Arise, he says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. Uh, Jonah's been spat out onto dry land, but the city of Nineveh was nowhere near the coast. So Jonah had a very long journey ahead of him. Uh, you have to wonder perhaps what was going through his mind over probably the weeks that he would have had to travel with hundreds of miles to the city of Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh would be a very frightening place to enter, even before Jonah even spoke. Uh, Nineveh's evil, you remember, had piled up before God. It was uh, the city at the heart of the powerful Assyrian Empire, which was notorious for its ruthlessness and its violence. Uh, the prophet Nahum referred to Nineveh as the city of blood. Uh, describing people stumbling over all the corpses that they had piled up. And this empire was known to torture rebels who stood against it. And Jonah now was being told, just do that, go. God said, I want you to go and speak against it. Uh, if they continued in their evil, God said, it would all come crashing down on them. Now that kind of message would get you killed, could get you killed in Nineveh. And it wouldn't be a swift death either. It would be a prolonged, painful one. So this was a really tough calling for Jonah. Uh, eventually he arrives at the city and the very presence of Jonah there in Nineveh 
already, I think, says a huge amount before he even speaks a word to them. Jonah has crossed into the territory of the enemy. He didn't just talk about Nineveh from a distance. God sent him to actually stand there among the people and speak to them. And that was so unexpected because, humanly speaking, it seemed crazy to do that. Uh, In 2 Kings 14, which is the only other place in the Old Testament we read about Jonah, his message then was delivered back home where he lived. It was a message quite, quite nice to deliver about keeping themselves secure and keeping enemies out. But now God calls him to leave that security, to cross the boundary into enemy territory, to go to the other, the the unfamiliar, the unpleasant, to Nineveh and speak face to face, human to human with them. Jonah's message was, of course, a warning to them. But as Jonah himself says in the next chapter, he also knew that God wanted to save the people. And the first point I just wanted to make this morning is that the kingdom of God sometimes comes about in that kind of boundary crossing way as God calls us, his people, to sometimes step out of our comfort, out of our accepted group where we feel at home and maybe God may call us to be present with the other, uh, to be present among perhaps those who are forgotten and least among our society, who others just ignore. And God may say, I want you to go to them. For me, maybe he calls us to be present with those who are disliked or difficult in some way. Even sometimes I think God calls us to be present in the middle of the darkness of the world. You know, we're not there with a sword. We're not there as Christians with more darkness, of course. We are there with a message from God, with the power of being the body of Christ, uh, living as his followers speaking God's light into the darkness. And God calls us not just to do that, to speak from a distance, uh, but often face to face. Relationships are so important to God. They define who God is. They always have as Father, Son, and Spirit. And I think God really, the norm for God is that we too are called to go in relationship with those around us to be present, sometimes with people who are very unlike us, perhaps, but who God wants to bless. And in fact, they may end up also being a blessing to us. That's often what people will say as they go into communities that are very different from what they're used to. And they go to bring a blessing, but they will come out and say, actually, do you know what? I've been blessed and taught perhaps even more than what I've shared with them. There's a word in the New Testament that I think is poorly translated. Uh, It's in the Greek of the New Testament, it's the word philozenia. And it literally means love for the outsider. Uh, It's the opposite of xenophobia, which xenophobia means to fear or hate the outsider. Now, we often in our English Bibles, we translate philozenia, love the outsider. We translate it as hospitality. And I just think that kind of misses the mark a bit. Uh, You know, this is not about have your friends over for tea, as nice as that is. Uh, It's about being bold to show love towards those who are seen as outsiders or who are different, who are foreign in some way or other, and often, therefore, who are viewed with disdain by society. 
Paul actually uses another related word, xenodokio in Greek, which literally means to accept or receive the outsider. Now, of course, that's exactly, when you think about the Gospels in the New Testament, that's exactly what we see Jesus doing. He, the Son of God, for the, for, to start with, but he's, you know, the God of heaven, Christ comes to the world in flesh as one of us human beings to dwell among us. God crossed over that incredible boundary, that gulf, we might say, in order to come to us. The light came into the darkness, John's Gospel says. In Luke 11, verse 30, Jesus said, said this about himself being present here in the world with us. He said, just as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, and notice how he says that, Jonah himself was a sign to the Ninevites, so will I, the Son of Man, Jesus says, I will be a sign to this generation. That I think what he means is that he, God in flesh, here among the world's sin and struggle and darkness, he is crossing so many boundaries, associating with so many people that they said he shouldn't associate with. He was among the needy, he was among even his enemies. You know, that is a sign, like Jonah was a sign in Nineveh, Jesus now is the sign from God of himself in our midst. Ultimately, a bit like Jonah, but only more so, Jesus, of course, stood right in the middle of another corrupt human empire and all the corrupt powers of the world surrounded him. And those powers in Jesus's time still wielded power in the same way as Nineveh had done, fear and oppression and corruption and violence, the sword. And there was Jesus, God with us. And what does he do? He died and then rose again for us to turn that upside down, to kind of completely undermine uh, the powers. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians, I think it's chapter 2, when he says that God made a spectacle of the powers and authorities when Jesus hung on a cross. It's kind of like Jesus comes as the Son of God, the ultimate power in this whole universe, and, he, and the power of his love says, I will die for your sin. And Paul says that, that makes a complete farce of all the other authorities and powers in this world. And I think the fact that we're still here 2,000 or more years on worshipping Jesus proves that. You know, what other kingdom has lasted? What other kingdom still has followers around the world praising the king? Uh, the power of Christ is greater far. Than, than any other. Uh, in his comment, now for us, you know, let's, what does this mean for us? Well, it, one thing uh, I read, uh, there's commentary on Luke's gospel, that passage about as the sign of Jonah in Jesus' life. And uh, there's a commentary by Justo Gonzalez, and he says this about, about that passage. You know, people want a sign from Jesus, and he said the only sign would be that he himself was here. Um, and, he, and Justo Gonzalez says, today people are asking again for signs. Even within the church, we're asking for signs. Just as people asked for signs that Jesus was really the one sent by God, so do we today. We want signs that the church is truly the church of God. So we look at our statistics. Is the church growing? Is our membership declining? Is giving increasing? Where are some successful churches? And we deceive ourselves into believing that the sign of God's presence 
is in our bright statistical spots. Or we admire our own theological acuteness, or our plans for evangelism, or our organizational ability, or something or another at which we consider ourselves particularly adept. And then he says this, but it may well be that no sign will be given to us but the sign of Jonah. It may well be that the sign of a church in which the Spirit of God is at work is precisely that the most unlikely folk are brought in, like the Ninevites were at the time of Jonah, or like the Queen of Sheba in the days of Solomon, or like the publicans and the sinners in the time of Jesus. The sign of Jonah may well be that barriers, for example, of race and class, which close and divide so many other communities, are torn down here in the community of the Spirit. That's a challenge to us, isn't it? Now, when Jonah got to the city, he is, we're told he spent a day walking around, taking it in, I guess. Nineveh was a huge city, um, and the signs of imperial and military power would have been very proudly on display there. But then Jonah spoke. Very simple message. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Nineveh's sin, its evil, was undeniable. The Assyrian Empire, as I've said before, it left scars all over the ancient world. Many were dead, many had been displaced and left destitute, many were terrified, many were suffering. But God's message to them was kind of that that, that kind of evil cannot last, because this is God's world. That kind of evil never will last. And so God's message came to Nineveh through Jonah. In 40 days, he says, it's all going to come crashing down. 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. Now, that kind of message would not, would not be allowed to enter the vocabulary of an empire like Assyria. Same with other empires, too. Uh, this empire of Assyria seemed the definition of strength. And success. Empires do not talk about the consequences of their sin. But in our own way, neither do we, if we don't want to. You know, if we want to live our lives by the kind of power that empires do, where we place ourselves above others, where we neglect God's call on our lives to love him and love our neighbor as ourselves, well, if we want to live a different way in that, we don't like to talk about the consequences. Jesus spoke about how we can just be walking down a road. It would be one of two roads, he says. One road's really broad. It's quite popular. But it leads, he says, to destruction. The other road, he said, is narrow, not so impressive looking, yes. But it's the way of Christ. And it actually leads to life. Or he talked about building a house on one of two foundations, either ignoring what he says, which is like building on sand, or hearing and living his words, he said, and that's like building on rock. And when the storm comes, only one of those houses can stand, Jesus says, the other, a bit like with Nineveh, the other would collapse. In a similar way, Jonah says to the Ninevites, 40 days, Nineveh's gonna be overturned. He's saying to them, look where you're headed. Look at what you're building, if you like. God has sent me to tell you that it cannot last. But there was also a glimmer of hope in Jonah's message because 
The particular word that Jonah used here in Hebrew, <clears throat> the one that we translate overturned, can have another sense. It literally means to turn. And first and foremost, it was a warning to them of impending destruction. But the word can sometimes have a more positive sense of turn around or change, we might say, or transform. So some have pointed out that there was kind of an implied invitation in what Jonah said, that they would think about what God was saying and that they would, rather than be overthrown, that they would be changed, transformed by it, by turning to God. Forty days, it's like, like the message, the Hebrew word actually is like a double message. Forty days, Nineveh will either be overthrown or it's going to be transformed. Which one is it going to be? And if we are on a destructive path in our life, you know, a similar question comes to us. God calls us to think about where we are, where we're heading, who we believe, who we are following. And in Christ, God offers us the opportunity to turn and begin something new, something life-changing, life-bringing by following Christ instead of whatever else it was we were going after. Now, wonderfully, here in, in the book of Jonah, the people of Nineveh responded to that message in the right way. They, they turned to God. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Uh, sackcloth was worn as a sign of, uh, well, grief or sadness or humility or remorse. So, and sackcloth and ashes were a sign of mourning. They're grieving about something. Fasting was used as, a, as, a, as kind of a, was a, a sign of seriousness, of commitment to something. There was, there's a, when you fasted, you were focused on something, and particularly when it's to do with God, fasting was about kind of a statement of depending on God. You know, I can't eat without you, Lord. So this is a, it's a, like a recognition we need God. Uh, and this was a very genuine response, therefore. The people of Nineveh, not only we're told they turned from their evil, but they were genuinely looking to God for forgiveness and for a new start. It becomes really vivid when the king of Nineveh does it himself. This is really helpful, I think, in understanding what it means for us to turn our lives to God. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and look at what he does. He, got, he arose from his throne... He got off his throne, he took off his robe, he covered himself in sackcloth, and he sat in ashes instead of on a throne. When, when the king of Nineveh steps off of his throne, takes off his royal robe, the symbol of his royal authority, puts on instead the signs of mourning and sits instead in ash, what he's doing is he's setting aside his own kingship to acknowledge the kingship of God. He humbles himself before God in sackcloth and ashes because he's grieving over what he and his city and his empire have been doing. Now, for a king to do that is pretty astounding, isn't it? But in a, in a very similar way, repentance for us, you could say, means coming off our thrones and allowing God to be God in our lives. And here in Jonah, the king gives a decree that everyone should do this. Uh, verses 8 and 9, let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth 
and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and, and relent or have compassion, and he may turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Who knows, they said. Perhaps God is merciful and compassionate. Now, Jonah already knows that God is merciful and compassionate. He'll say that in chapter 4, verse 2. I knew, because as we'll see next time, he was a bit annoyed about what happened. He said, I knew you're like this, God. I knew you're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and that you would turn and relent from disaster. So here in, verse, in chapter 3, in verse 10, uh, when, they, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them. He did not do it. Now the word translated relent, God relented, is a really profound word. Uh, it's very difficult to translate. Uh, the Hebrew word comes from a sort of root idea of, it, it's sort of a deep breath like, or a sigh. Uh, it, and it's connected to compassion for someone, a sort of sigh of compassion. What it indicates is a kind of aching deep breath of compassion, an aching feeling. It's like someone's entering into the situation someone else is in and they're really feeling it and sharing its pain. And it's like an inner sigh of compassion for that other person. It's very difficult to translate. There's no word really that means that in English. Um, but that's what it's about, being so deeply moved that there's a sense almost of inner suffering that's being felt over somebody else's situation. God felt like that for the people of Nineveh. And that's why he saved them. And that is, and when you think about that word, that is a gospel word. The fact that while God, you know, while God looks at this world and sees all our sin, yet in a sense God would come and suffer for our sin in order to save us from it. He would carry the weight of saving us. That's what we see at the cross, isn't it? God actually takes our place, suffers for us to save us because he's compassionate, because he loves us, because it moves him to see the mess we get in and he wants to rescue us. So God comes to us, Jesus carries the burden and that's what his death on the cross is about. Jesus, God's son, took our place, suffered and died for our sin so that he can save us from it. And as a result, just like with Nineveh, we are no longer destroyed but saved. God carries that, that word, that deep suffering sigh of compassion which God felt for Nineveh. That's how he feels for you and me. And it's the most redemptive thing in the world that God does that. The love of God means he will carry our burdens so that he can set us free from their clutches. We're told the Ninevites believed God and they said maybe, perhaps God will have compassion so that we don't perish. What does the gospel say? John chapter 3, God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him, not just the Ninevites believed and won't perish, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish 
but have eternal life. We will not be overturned, but will be transformed by the grace of God in Christ. Jonah's, experience, uh, Jonah's appearance in Nineveh was so unexpected. Nobody thought somebody would turn up and do that. It was like nothing the Ninevites had seen before. You could call it an interruption from God. Something different appearing in the middle of the usual mechanisms of empire. And it was so striking that everything stopped. It was like they all suddenly woke up and realized they'd been sleepwalking into disaster with violence in their hands. But it saved them because they turned to God. But then think even in, even, in an even much, much bigger sense, the appearance of Christ, the Son of God in the world, who then goes and dies and rises again for us. That is an even greater interruption from God into the history of this world on a far greater scale. It is the interruption from God, Jesus is, which encompasses all of history, in fact, and all of creation, that Christ came and lived and died and rose again here on this world. Christ appeared among us, the Son of God, to do that. And in a sense, the world now has to stand still and look at that and decide. The Ninevites had a choice when Jonah appeared, a choice about the direction, the trust, the basis for the, of the rest of their lives. Carry on as they were or turn to God and discover compassion and grace that brings about a whole new life. We too have a choice as we see and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ who came among us, God in flesh, to die and rise again from us. And he did that so that we won't perish, but we'll have life. Now, will we just carry on as we are? If we're walking away from God, are we just going to carry on walking away from God? Or will we believe and follow and find life in him and begin living in a whole new way? I pray that God will speak really clearly to us. You know, like he sent Jonah to Nineveh, that God's spirit will keep speaking the truth of Christ into our midst so that God will make us stop. And I know maybe even all of us here are Christians, but we have to keep having those moments where God just makes us stop again and see Jesus on that cross and from that empty tomb so that we'll decide all over again in a sense. Yes, still now, for the rest of my life, I want to follow Jesus. May his spirit lead us in that way and into the life that he gives.